0: Thank you very much, Lindsay, for talking to me today. Um, I want to start off with the first question, uh, which is, you've written extensively on literature and engagement. Do you think liter- literature scholarship itself can be anything more than horrified human- humanitarianism? Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, horrified humanitarianism is a phrase I quote in my latest book, Placeless People, and it comes from the writer Dorothy Thompson, um, who's a journalist, not a literature writer, responding to the refugee crisis in 1938. And she said, you know, horrified humanitarianism is not enough, it has to be political. Um, But underneath that question is the um, issue of what I've seen developing in some literary studies recently, um, which is eternal, on the one hand, to ethics, and an ethics of empathy, um, so at, at one level you could call it a kind of literary humanitarianism insofar as um, the qualities of empathy and ethical engagement with the other are very similar to um, forms of humanitarianism that we see elsewhere in our culture, or in humanitarian cultures and in the tradition of humanitarianism. Um, I would never, now is never the time, now of all times, I've never called for less empathy. We are in deeply unempathetic times. But I do think um, an over-reliance on an ethics of empathy, or just on an ethics, cuts short the work that literature can do, and the cut-short work that people um, have done. Which is to say... um, it's one thing to imagine the life of someone who's suffering has less power than you. It's something else to imagine um, the complex um, qualities or variances of other lives as they're implicated in power. Okay, So just to give you a concrete example of this, um, I was reading Hannah Arendt's teaching notes um, earlier this year. Um, when she went to the States, she um, started... She taught at Berkeley, she taught at Cornell, Chicago, New School, and and Columbia. And these notes are quite early, and she taught a course um, both at Cornell, Berkeley, and I think at the New School called Political Experience in the 20th Century. And that's a lovely course, it's very interesting for us because it's it's got literary texts on it as well. So she taught Camus, she taught as well as teaching political theory. And in her teaching notes, she says... Um, I want you to imagine the political experience of Europeans in the 20th century. Remember, she's teaching American students in the 1950s, and she says, not to empathise, but to understand its complications. And she says, to remember it's an experience that is very not yours. You haven't got access to that experience. You're not going to you, know, you know, become one of these people um, she said, Then she says, "That's a bit like, bit of my experience, but not not yours." And what she's asking her students to do, she's using a Kantian idea of imagination here, and she wants a moral imagination. So she wants her students to examine um, just you know, what those texts say about the quality of that life, the decisions that had to be made, politics of that time, rather than what we tend to do today is imagining someone else's suffering. So she's asked. She thinks, and most literary teachers would agree with this: the morality of teaching literature isn't just to do with with you know empathising with people who have unfortunate lives or extending empathy. It's actually about changing the way your imagination is mapped um, and changing your understanding of political experience. So I don't think um, I think if there's a sort of um, you know, a deadlock argument, it is around the reduction in some discourses of literature to the question of ethics um, um, rather than ethics and politics which is where it's always been um, has been a difficult one and I kind of go back to, you know, literature as it was taught in um, the UK under Leavisism was always a moral project it wasn't meant to be a moral project, it was meant to teach you how to be a citizen, how to engage with the world and how to be Um, It was not a project um, around keeping the status quo or empathising with the suffering of others unlike yourselves. Um, So that's what I mean by, you know, literature... Literature is always more than horrified humanitarianism. I mean, some literature isn't, but... um, um, But the frames in which we read and talk about literature sometimes are not. And also the other thing in terms of, you know, if you're committed to um, social justice and political um, change... As in other discourses, there is a lot of humanitarianism around, and a lot of empathy around, and still a lot of suffering is produced, and that's because we're not asking the really difficult questions, which are oh, which are around equality, mm-hmm. which are um, you know why. why you know, there's Richard Rorty, in the towards the end of the Cold War, wrote a very famous essay uh, where he gave a lecture for the Amnesty Lectures. Um, when he talked about kind of new narratives of sentimentalism. And it's, it's a fascinating essay and it's very influential. And, 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 it, and it's, it's wrought yet at its best, and I think at, at, at his worst. And what he, he kind of says there is, which is right, that um, literature, where well, he, he, he comes from his books, so he has these terms for irony, solidarity, and identification. Um, and the irony is there because the Western reader or writer um, knows that his or her position is a morally dubious one so irony is his answer to that Um, but what we need is writers to produce new sentimental narratives in order for us to engage with other people um, and to understand their their lives in order to produce a kind of solidarity it's quite clear um, 20 years after Rorty that that Breaking down. I mean, there's a kind of literary humanitarianism that's implicit in Morty's position, which says, We need, he actually says at one point, you know, people are suffering so bad they need other people to speak for them. And so the whole prism of that is based around um, the Western liberal imagining someone else's life. Um, Whereas, obviously, what's what's producing um, the Western liberal's anxious suffering is the fact that she knows that her. Privilege of her life is predicated on the suffering of others. That's and that's what we've seen, you know, in the last eighteen months is a realization of, of that. So that kind of, you know, that that's sort of what I, And so, so I do think. I mean, I I, I always read that the Rorty essay was some suspicion. Um, partly because we his overconfident, and I don't care if it's ironic. Sometimes when you think you're being ironic, um, you're just being offensive. His over reliance on the we liberals, we liberals, as if there's nobody else the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so that moment, I think, has gone, which then raises the question of what, what we want literature, or the teaching of literature, or literary criticism, or literary history, to do, mm-hmm. um, which is a big question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and would you answer this big question? Or I don't one? think. I don't think. I think there are lots of contingencies um, that need um, to be mm-hmm. answered in that. Um, for me, it means, um, take, if you take literature really, really seriously, you put it back into history and you put it back very forcefully. There are texts. Texts don't just represent or teach us how to empathise with the world. Texts make the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the example that a lot of people give um, in, in the field of um, genocide studies that people have worked on in Yugoslavia is the fact that Rebecca West's um, Black Lamb, Grey um, mm-hmm. um, Fork, yeah, um, was on the desks of you know, perpetrators... In, in, in that war, 1984 is not just a novel about totalitarianism. It's a novel that was taught to Cold War children, myself included, in order to teach a certain way of thinking about liberalism and totalitarianism. So, I, you know, my, my answer is you know, texts have to be put very strongly, and ethics have to be put very very strongly back into political history. Um, that's my <coughs> my reckoning. And so, you know, I, I you know, Literature is always, always, always aesthetic, but I think I'd want, I want now for us to have a more engaged conversation. Some of the people I think are doing the most interesting work with literature at the moment are historians and political scientists. Um, so if you look at the work of someone like Duncan Bell at Cambridge, who's a political scientist, writing on HG Wells, um, writing about utopias and how fictional utopias create different political utopias, it's really fantastic um, work. It's been done by a political scientists. Um, so... I think, you know, we need to re-engage with history and politics. And that actually means affirming that literature is the stuff, you know, it's that literature isn't peripheral, literature isn't just humanitarianism, it doesn't come on later to say the world is awful but we can respond to it in more or less exquisite or bad ways. It's actually saying that words we write and the way we imagine the world and the texts that are circulating, the way those are taught, make history. What is your sense of the role of commemoration for stateless persons? Do do descriptors like official and unofficial commemoration have meaning? I think it's a really interesting question and throughout today I had it in mind um, to talk about. I think, I feel very strongly, and this is again sitting with my historical hat on, um, that the history of memory and commemoration is very aligned to the history of the modern nation-state, particularly the modern colonial state, and particularly the modern European state, uh, right the way back from the Ottoman Empire. That kind of whole sense of a cultural of remembrance is linked to that political history. So the question of what happens to statelessness is a really interesting one. Um, I was always, the last sort of few years, uh, a statement from Eric Hobsbawm has rung loudly in my ears, and he says in his book *The Age of Extremes*, the 20th century was so extreme that we had to um, invent new words to describe the extreme things we were doing to one another. One was genocide, and um, one was statelessness. Um, There are a lot of commemorations to genocide over the last (coughs) 60, 70 years. I don't think I've seen commemoration to statelessness. Why not? Um, Because statelessness um, in itself is a phenomenon that challenges understandings about national sovereignty and the nation-state. Was you know genocide? Do- well, genocide troubles those boundaries, but not irretrievably. Um, so, on the one hand, um, it would be very difficult within our current matrix to have a kind of commemorative of statelessness. I mean, because it's ongoing, and it's ongoing as a crisis of nation-state politics. Um, so, I don't think people are going to do it. On the other hand, in the work I've been doing with refugee hosts, which is a, um, a Global um, Challenges Fund, L M A H R C N E S O Z funded project in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, um, which is dealing with refugee-to-refugee humanitarianism. And so we're working with um, um, Syrian refugees who've gone to already established refugee communities in um, Lebanon and Jordan. So in Lebanon there's many Palestinian communities, so people are going back to places in Beirut, they're going to Padawi camp, blah, blah, blah. Um, In in Jordan it's also Palestinian, but also in in Turkey it's Kurdish, so there's there's this whole and what's happening there um, is the um, min- um, use of a shared refugee history. Syria was a country that was made out of refugee flows. Um, the Middle East has been defined by displaced people. That's the, that's national politics, and so that there, there is a kind of not so much politics of commemoration because you know, none of this is over; it's all being lived. Um, but there is a um, there is an ethics and a humanitarianism that comes out of a shared refugee. History which relies on the memory of that history being kept alive. Um, and the way that's kept alive is to do with um, narrative, place, storytelling, etc. So, those kind of um, local, um, transnational um, moments of um, remembering refugee history, but also living refugee history and, and surviving refugee history. Um, are very important, but they, they can't be incorporated into um, nation state commemoration by definition, um, because the state statements are precisely those who've been kicked out of the nation state, <laughs> who, don't, who don't have nation states. Um, so it's a complicated question. I, but I do think, I do feel quite strongly that you know, to talk about an ethics and psychology of commemoration without talking about nation state politics or sovereignty or citizenship is an, is an, an error? I think we'll, we'll end up having the same conversations again and again and again because we won't actually understand where the power investments are coming for that kind of politics. Mm-hmm. In the judicial imagination, writing after Nuremberg, you consider the nexus between law, imaginative literature, trauma, and justice. How do these things interact in cultural practices of commemoration? Right. Is it? a really interesting question because I think they act in good ways and bad ways um, what I discovered by putting writers and lawyers into, into the same book in the digital imagination is that with big trials and with human rights as well people want their justice to be meaningful poetic justice but the law um, is the law and um, there's only so much the law can do um, and lawyers know this incredibly well um, so there's always going to be a deficit a kind of moral deficit between what the law can do um, and what it might do and that's why when you, when you look at writers who write about justice, who are writing about Nuremberg or write about the Eichmann trial um, to put those together you get a bigger picture of of the whole story that said there's a I'm just. I'm writing a very short book for OUP on um, literature in the age of human rights. But I want to write an even bigger book about the humanities and the formation of human rights in the 20th century, because the traffic between writers, um, um, historians, moralists, philosophers, and the development of human rights has always been very, very intimate. And social sciences don't like to own up to this. It's, like, it's law. You know, the narrative is that you know, World War II happened. Um, international relations got taken over by the social mm. scientists because the historians and all the human, humanities people had shown that they were completely bad at doing this, um, so they needed a kind of more scientific basis. And certainly, you know, the, the development of human rights law, um, as it went into the sixties and seventies, bore that out. And it was it was sort of very rationalist and pragmatic. But at the beginning and and, and the, the, the kind of moments where human rights changes itself, have had a very intimate relationship with you know either writers. Or people who understand writing, Virginia Green um, Gildsleep, one of the first women um, heads of an American college, wrote a lot of the um, UN um, founding founding statement. Um, and when you look at the development of human rights um, from in terms of you know, post-colonialism, would, would would we have the same articulation of international law and global justice without Holly anchor? I don't think so. Without a shabby, um, there's, there's, there's something that moves. Or more locally, look at the European campaign against capital punishment. You know, capital punishment was technically banned under um, the European Convention, but no-one really wanted to get rid of it, partly because you know, um, certainly in France and England we were involved in finishing up our dirty colonial wars and we still wanted the right. I mean, it took us an awful long time to ratify the European Convention on Human Rights because of that reason. Um, but they, to turn that into law... That was a group of writers. That was Camus working with Kessler, working with other people, providing what um, Raymond Williams would call the kind of structure of feeling, the ideas that would you know allow the law to make sense. So that kind of interaction between imagination um, and law and history is terribly um, important, and that we do need to understand those kind of connections. I always say. Um, if you look at literature and human rights, literature and, and, and um, law, people are always doing two things. One is they're accurately, and I'm quoting here from Elaine Scarry, one thing that you need to be able to do to think what is is accurately establish what has happened and what is the case. Um, and the other thing you need to be able to do if you're involved in um, political and social justice is to imagine what might happen, what could happen, what's not there, what's absent. Um, and she says, you know, the name of these two things is literature and history, but it's actually that, that kind of double mo- moment of being, you know, empirical and establishing real stuff, and the interaction with imagining it is negative, imagining what needs to happen. And to any kind of um, culture on human rights, based around human rights or democracy, those two things are absolutely central. Um, but I guess to go back to your first question around horrified humanitarianism. We can't just do the imagining we need to get a bit hard headed about the limits of that that project Um, and again maybe be like that earlier generation who were quite happy to be interdisciplinary or go and work policy or go and ask what might it look like if we invented what might human rights look like if we try to reinvent them and that's what people were trying to do more or less within the constraints of um, real politics and the Cold War and the threat of nuclear terror which kind of cut some train lines. Thank you very much Okay thank you